You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I invite you to open your Bibles to Job chapter 8. Job chapter 8, as we continue our series called When the Righteous Suffer. Now that we've spent a few weeks in the book of Job, we might venture a guess or a theory as to what the book of Job is all about. The most obvious answer is that this is a book about suffering. This is a book about deep and dark suffering and how to persevere through that suffering. Now, that is true to some extent, but not completely, because the book of Job is mainly concerned with only one type of suffering among many types of suffering. There is suffering that results from our sin. There is suffering that results as the natural consequences of the foolishness of our choices. And there is suffering that results from simply living in a world that is broken by the fall. Job isn't about those kinds of suffering, though I'm sure you can learn something about those kinds of suffering from this book. But at the heart of Job is a more specific kind of suffering, what we have called innocent suffering, the kind of suffering where there is no causal connection between what you have done and what you have received. A good Samaritan is killed while helping others A precious beloved child dies at a young age. A faithful employee is fired for refusing to do something that is unethical. That's the kind of suffering that the book of Job is about. The book of Job is also about God's sovereignty. Another major theme in this book is that God is in control of all things. He is the king of creation. And as the sovereign king of creation, nothing happens except through him and by his will. He is in control of good and evil, prosperity and adversity, health and sickness, life and death. Job presents God as one who is completely in control of everything that happens in your life, including the evil that the devil inflicts upon you. And so if we take these two themes of the sovereignty of God and the reality of innocent suffering, a third central theme of the book of Job emerges, and that is the theme of divine justice. Divine justice. If if God is sovereign, if he is in control of everything, and yet innocent people suffer and die and lose everything in their lives, can we still say that God is just? Can we still believe in divine justice? Or do we have to say that God is not just, but instead is arbitrary, that he is capricious, that he is cruel? Divine justice is one of the central themes of this divinely inspired book. And it is the theme that Job struggles and wrestles with in these chapters. The title of this sermon is Questioning God's Justice, Questioning God's Justice, 
we're going to divide up these three chapters in the book of Job into three points. First, a friend's rebuke. Second, a hopeless courtroom. And third, a bitter complaint. Let's begin with chapter eight, a friend's rebuke. Now, chapter eight contains the first speech of Job's second friend. Last Sunday, we heard the first speech of Job's first friend, Eliphaz, uh, uh, the Temanite. Now we hear from Bildad the Shuhite. This is the first of his three speeches in the book of Job. Unlike Eliphaz before him, who was patient, who was kind, who was tender in the way that he addressed Job, Bildad is more direct. He, he doesn't waste any time with trying to be sensitive or tender. He just says it as he sees it. He gets directly to the point, and that is reflected in the relative length of his speech. It is less than half the length of Eliphaz's first speech. From the very start, Bildad reveals that he is frustrated with Job. He says in verses 1 and 2, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Now, we know that Job hasn't actually said that much. For most of the aftermath of his grieving, he has remained silent. He spoke in chapter 3, and he spoke in chapters 6 and 7. But for a man who has lost as much as he did, he has actually not said very much at all. But for Bildad, he has already heard enough. He wants Job to stop talking, at least to stop talking the way that he has been talking. He calls Job's words a great wind because to him, Job's words lack substance. They're just empty words floating out in the atmosphere without any lasting value. And the reason why is because of what Job has asserted about God's justice. Job has said that he is innocent, Job has said that he doesn't understand why God has done this to him. And Bildad won't have it. He challenges Job in verse 3. He asks, does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? According to Bildad, Job's assertion that he has suffered as an innocent man is a perversion of justice. It is a false claim that God has wronged him because Bildad believes that people only get what they deserve. And that is reflected in what he says in verse four. He says, if your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Now he doesn't outright say that Job's children lie dead because they sin, but the suggestion is clear. He's saying, Job, people get what they deserve. If if they sin, then they will fall into the hands of their transgression. And so we see that like Eliphaz before him, Bildad lives in a black and white world, a, a world without nuance, a world without mystery, a world without unanswered questions about why God does what he does. Bildad, he knows exactly why things happen. The righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. It's as simple as that for him. There is no room. 
There is no room for Satan and his diabolical schemes to destroy and divide. There is no room for living in a world that is broken by the fall. There is not even room in Bildad's way of understanding the world for redemption. There's no room for God's forgiveness. If you sin, God will give you what you deserve and he will deliver you into the hand of your transgression. Now we know from chapter one that Job regularly offered atoning sacrifices for each of his 10 children. He, he, he offered pre, preemptive intercession on their behalf to pay for their sins so that God would not discipline them or judge them. But Bildad didn't know that. Bildad didn't care. In his world, there was no atonement, no forgiveness, no grace. God only helps those who help themselves. And that is why he urges Job to repent in verses five to seven. He says, if you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. It's very simple for Bildad. Job needs to beg for mercy and he needs to change his life around. He needs to live a pure and upright life. Then God will restore him. Then God will bless him beyond his wildest dreams. This man who was once the greatest of all the people of the East, those blessings he enjoyed, the the wealth that he possessed, it would be considered small compared to what God would give him in his latter days. It sounds attractive, doesn't it? It sounds like a compelling reason to turn to the Lord, to beg for mercy, and to somehow change his life around. But at the heart of it, Bildad's argument is demonic. Bildad's argument reflects Satan's words. Bildad is tempting Job the same way that Eliphaz tempted him. He is tempting Job to go to God in order to get what he wants. He's tempting Job to go to God for his gifts. Now, if Job were to give in to this temptation, Job would become the very man Satan accused him of being, a man who only blessed God for his blessings, a man who lived piously to gain God's protection, a man who submitted to God's will in order to be free from suffering. But but God is so much more than his gifts. Even if, if God took all his gifts away from us, God is still enough. Job knew that. He, he knew that in chapter one and chapter two. When he first hears the news of the death of his children and the loss of all his wealth, he tears his clothes, he shaves his head, he falls down on the ground and he worships. He was saying that God is still enough, though all his gifts are stripped away from him. But now, now in the midst of his deepest and extended and prolonged grief, he is being tempted by his friends to abandon God as the one who is enough and to seek him for the sake of material gain. 
Now, Bildad tries to strengthen his case in verses eight to 10. You remember Eliphaz doing the same thing? He, he gives Job a principle and then he says, I had this really mystical spiritual experience where I heard these words and those words just confirm the truth of what I'm saying. Well, Bildad does the same thing, except he doesn't appeal to a spiritual experience. He appeals to the wisdom of tradition. He says in verses eight to 10, for inquire please of bygone ages and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we, we are but of yesterday and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you in other words out of their understanding? Now that, that, is, that is good advice. That is good advice. It is good advice to consider the wisdom of the ages. Bildad is warning Job to avoid what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, where those who live now think that they're smarter and more superior than those who came before just because of where we stand on the timeline of history. But the problem here, the problem here is not that Bildad appeals to tradition and to the wisdom of of old, the problem here is that Bildad only appeals to the tradition that confirms his beliefs. If Bildad had the tradition of scripture, which he likely did not have, but if he had that tradition, he would see that the righteous do indeed suffer, that there is indeed such a thing as innocent suffering, and that Job was not wrong to say that God had afflicted him without cause. Now, Bildad then uses a number of word pictures in verses 11 to 19 to describe the person who doesn't trust the Lord. And of course, his suggestion is that Job is this person or is at risk of becoming this person. He's like a plant trying to grow without water. Or he's like a man who is leaning on a spider's web or on a house that will not stand. He is like a lush plant that seems to be growing and fruitful but its roots entwine the stone heap, he says in verse 17. His roots entwine the stone heap. What does that say about the plant? Where it says that its roots are not deep. They're not deep in the ground where they're drawing nutrients and water. They're on the surface. And so this plant is destined to dry up and disappear. And when he perishes, he is forgotten. Even the place he lives denies him, saying, I have never seen you. Now, Bildad's last word to Job is this in verses 20 to 22. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no more. We see in these verses that Bildad is trying to be a good friend. He wants Job to laugh again. He wants Job to be happy he doesn't want Job to languish in his despair. He, he wants him to put on a happy face. He wants him to be able to move on. He wants to see his friend restored. But all of Bildad's advice comes from a flawed view of suffering, a flawed view of Job, and a flawed view of God. Bildad is urging Job to be a blameless man. Verse 20, God will not reject a blameless man so just be a blameless man, Job, and everything will be all right. But he doesn't know. Bildad does not know that God already declared Job to be blameless and upright, a man who fears the Lord and turns away from evil. Job's sin here is not the problem. 
which means that Job's repentance is not the solution. Job's afflictions have indeed come upon him without divine explanation or reason, which is why it was so difficult for Job. The differences between the perspective of Job's friends and Job himself is captured effectively by Derek Kidner, who writes, to them, the issue he should be facing is, what have I done? But to him, it is, what has God done? And that is where we turn to next as Job begins his response. And this leads to our second point, a hopeless courtroom. Job begins his reply in chapter nine with a question. He asks, truly, I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? Job knows that it is of first importance for a man to be in the right before God. But he wonders how that could be possible. As believers, we we can relate to that statement. We could ask the same question. How can a man be right before God? We, We cannot stand before God as those who are righteous and justified because we are sinners. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We we can affirm that. But the difference between Job and us is that we say that we can't be right before God because of our sin. Job says that he can't be right before God because of God, because God is fundamentally unjust. That's what Job's argument is in this chapter. And he begins his argument with a poem about God's power. That God is the all-powerful, omnipotent ruler of creation. But notice how he chooses to focus on how God's power brings disorder rather than order. He writes in verses 3 to 7, If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded... All true, all true, Job. Then he says, he who removes mountains, and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars. Job sees God using his omnipotent power to bring about chaos and disorder in the world because, of course, that is what he has experienced in his life. That the God that Job has in his mind is not the God who brings life and order and peace, but the God who brings disorder, chaos, and disruption. And Job says, if I were to take God to court, this God, if I were to take him to the courtroom, it would not be a fair fight. Look at what God can do. Look at what he does to creation. Look at how he does whatever he wants. I don't stand a chance against this God. Once again, Job is right. He is right that God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. But but how Job imagines God using his power is fundamentally flawed. That is captured in verses 14 to 19. He asks, how then can I answer him choosing my words with him. Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. 
I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Job is saying that this all-powerful God He does not play by the rules. He he does not conform himself to the principles of justice that one should see in the courtroom. Even if Job says, I am in the right, he has no answer for the Lord. Job could summon the Lord to testify, but he has no confidence that the Lord will speak. Job could try to match his wits with God, but he would not overwhelm him with his might. There is no way that Job can answer God. And therefore, there is no way for Job to prove himself to be blameless. Now, Job isn't trying to convince himself. He's not trying to prove to himself that he is indeed blameless. He believes that already. He says that in verse 15. He says it twice in verse 20. He says it again in verse 21. I am in the right. I am blameless. He's not trying to convince himself. He's trying to convince his friends He's trying to convince the world that watches him suffer. And most importantly, he was trying to convince God. That is what Job wants more than anything else. His burning desire in his heart is to be vindicated before God and man. That this suffering that has come upon me has not come upon me because of my sin. It has not come upon me because I did something that was wrong. It has come upon me out of God's providence and I have no explanation for it other than God is cruel. God is unjust. This desire to be vindicated stands above his desire to be wealthy again. Never does he pray for 500 donkeys and 3,000 camels and 7,000 sheep. He doesn't pray for that. He, he, he doesn't even pray that his children would be restored to him or that his wife would be reconciled to him. He prays above all that he would be vindicated before God because that is all he has left. He has his integrity. And he wants his integrity to be affirmed by God in the courtroom. But he doesn't believe that he will get it because he doesn't believe in God's justice anymore. He doesn't believe that he will get his day in court to prove that he is indeed blameless. And that makes him a bitter man. He is bitter about his life and he is bitter about his God. Verses 21 and 24 reflects this. I am blameless, I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one, therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? Now it is important here to notice that Job says things about God here that just are not true. God does not mock at the calamity of the innocent. God is not sitting dispassionately on his throne in heaven laughing at people's pain. He he does 
laugh at his enemies who rage and plot against him, but God does not laugh at his beloved people. No, God's response to the pain of his beloved people is captured in Lamentations chapter three, which says, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. This is the God of scripture. And this is the God whom Job has lost sight of. He, he has lost sight of the God of compassion, the God of mercy, the God who does not afflict or grieve the children of men from his heart. And that is why he says these bitter things about God. C.S. Lewis wrote about this, this conflict that he felt in his own soul after the death of his wife. He writes, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but, so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. This, this captures what Job felt. Job wasn't tempted to believe that God doesn't exist. That is the case for some out there. They turn from faith to atheism because of the suffering in their lives. That was not Job's temptation. Job's temptation was to believe that this is what God is really like, that God is unjust, that God is unfair, that God is uncaring. And in doing so, Job said things that were sinful. Job's sin may not have led to his suffering, but his suffering led to his sin. But God, how does he respond to this? He does not rebuke Job in this moment, though he will have words for Job later on. He does not crush him further than what he has already suffered. Instead, the Lord, he listens. He receives Job's prayers and he waits for the right time to speak. Now, chapter nine ends with Job speaking to God in verses 25 to 31. We know that because he addresses God as you in verses 28 and 31, and then he speaks about God in verses 32 to 35. He starts talking about God in the third person. So as Job prays, as he prays in verses 25 to 31, we are struck by his honesty and by his relatability. He talks about trying to move on from his pain in verse 27. He says, if I say I will forget my complaint, I'll put off my sad face and be of good cheer, that's what he's trying to do. He's, he's trying to move on. He's trying to put on a happy face. But he can't because he's afraid of the next thing God will do to him. Then in chapter, in verse 29, he talks about laboring in vain, living with integrity and living under the command of God and living in the fear of the Lord. It's all in vain because God will end up punishing him anyways. And then Job returns to this scene of a hopeless courtroom in verses 30, 32 to 33. He says, for he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. 
Job wants an arbiter between him and God. Someone to stand before God's wrath and Job's weakness. He wants a mediator, one who will lay his hand on them both and bring those who are far from each other together again. But as far as he knew, there was no mediator. There was no arbiter between them, which is why his case seemed so hopeless. Job ends his speech with another bitter complaint in chapter 10, which leads to our third point. Now, this prayer in chapter 10 is just as dark as the prayers that came before it, first in chapter 3 and then in chapters 6 and 7. He tells God again that he loathes his life. I, I hate this life that you have given me, God, He asks God in verse two, why you contend with me? Just let me know why this happened. He challenges God with a rhetorical question in verse three that suggests that God favors the wicked over the righteous. And in verses four to seven, he accuses God of nitpicking when it comes to Job's sin. He even says that God knows that he is not guilty. God knows that he is innocent and yet he is bent on digging up dirt on his life. He is pursuing him as his accuser and is the one who wants to condemn him. Then in verses 8 to 13, Job finally expresses his sense of betrayal. He says, your hands fashioned and made me and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay. Will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart. I know that this was your purpose. He's saying, God, you, you made me. You fashioned me like clay. You even preserved my life with your steadfast love and care. But now, now I see who you truly are. I see what was hidden in your heart. It was hatred. It was condemnation. It was injustice. Job feels betrayed by God. He feels that God set him up to believe all these good things about him, that God is good, that God is just, that God will protect him, that God will do what is right, only then to turn around and stab him in the back. Job has lost all sense of the goodness of God, and with it, he has lost his hope. Verse 15, he says, if I am guilty, woe to me. If I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head. For I'm filled with disgrace and look on my affliction. Job, Job doesn't know what he's living for anymore. I mean, if, if I'm guilty, I'm going to be punished. And if I'm blameless, I'm going to be wrecked. What is the point? Guilty or innocent, he loses. God is just going to bring more witnesses against him. He's going to bring fresh troops against him. There's just no escape. And so, Job questions the purpose of his life Again, verse 18, why? Why did you bring me out from the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me. 
and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. There is no purpose in my life. There is no purpose except suffering. And if it's only suffering, why do I even exist? And then he leaves God yet again with this bitter request that we read earlier in the book of Job. He says, are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone. Just go away. Leave me alone that I may find a little cheer before I go and I, I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order, where light is as thick darkness. You get this point? He could hardly have been more illustrative of his experience. This is dark. Even the light is like thick darkness about him. And Job has come to believe that the only way he can emerge out of that darkness is if God leaves him alone. If God abandons him and stops thinking about him and paying attention to him, that is the only way he will find a little cheer in the few days that he has left. So, what do we take away from these three chapters of Job? Let me suggest two things. First, pray honestly. Pray Honestly, Job was not a perfect man. We have seen him sin with his lips in these chapters. And yet, Job is held up before us from the very beginning of this book as an exemplary believer. He is the man whom God declared, there is no one like him on the earth. He is my faithful servant. This man is not weak in faith. He is strong in faith. This man was a man of integrity, a man who believed the truth, a man who put his hope in the Lord. And yet, this is how he prayed. This is what he said to God in the bitterness of his soul. He prays with an almost embarrassing level of honesty, pouring out his bitterness to his friends and to his God. My friends, if you've ever found yourself in a dark season of the soul, you know how hard it is to pray. You know that you can barely muster a few words before God. And, it, and you say, oh, I'm, I'm not going to pray because I don't have anything good to say to God. But if the book of Job tells us anything, it tells us that it is better for you to pour out your bitterness to God than to not say anything at all. In his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, a book that I have cited many times, Mark Vrogop writes this, many people are afraid of lament. They find it too honest, too open, or too risky. But there's something far worse. Silent despair. Giving God the silent treatment is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. Despair lives under the hopeless resignation that God doesn't care, he doesn't hear, and nothing is ever going to change. People who believe this stop praying. They give up. This silence is a soul killer. My friends, it is far better. It is far better for us to pray like Job than to not pray at all, because bitter prayer 
is still prayer. Though his heart struggles to trust in God again, his heart is still inclined to God in prayer. Bitter prayer is still the fruit of genuine faith. But when faith disappears, that is when prayer disappears. So we must not let this happen. If you feel like your soul is empty, if you feel that you have no words to say before God, that is precisely when you have the most to say. That is precisely when you have most reason to spend time on your knees in bitter complaints. Your prayers may not be flowery. Your prayers may not even be, even be biblically accurate, but it will be genuine, and that's what matters. A little faith is better than no faith at all. And what does Jesus say about faith like a mustard seed? When prayer seems hardest, those are the times when we are to pour out our hearts to God. Tell him how you feel. Ask him why he has done this. Tell, tell him about your perception of who he is. Sometimes I think we don't say those things because we're afraid that God will find out what's already, what's, what's happening in our minds and in our hearts. God already knows. He already knows exactly what is in your heart, what is in your mind. And he wants you to pour it out to him. Second, trust in the arbiter. Trust in the arbiter. This sermon began as a message about God's justice, and so that is how we will end it. Job lamented the fact that there was no arbiter between him and God, no go-between who would lay his hands on them both and bring them together. He lamented that there was no one there to bridge the gap between a holy God and a sinful man. But we... Christian, we, dear believer, we know and we celebrate the fact that there is an arbiter. There is a mediator who came and laid his hand on both God and man by being both God and man. Jesus Christ is that mediator, the one mediator between God and man who has given himself as a ransom for all. He sacrificed himself on the cross for sinners, not because of God's injustice, but because of God's perfect justice and mercy. Job was looking for an arbiter, but found none. We look for an arbiter and find him in God's own son. God himself has provided the arbiter that we need in Jesus Christ. And this arbiter, this Man who has gone between a holy God and sinful man has not just mediated our case through negotiation, but through crucifixion. And that is how we know that God is just. It is not by looking at our circumstances. It is by looking at the cross. It is at the cross where God displays his perfect justice, pouring out his wrath upon sinners and it is on the cross where God displays his infinite love and compassion that he would 
do that for sinners like us. And so the book of Job urges us today to put our trust in this arbiter, to look to Christ as the one mediator between God and man. Trust in the arbiter who has come to save us. Trust in Jesus Christ sent by God not to punish us, but to save us. Not to give us the deepest grief and sorrow, but to lead us to everlasting joy and salvation. Let this arbiter be your confidence and hope. Let this mediator be the light in your darkness. Let him be the reason for you to trust in God's justice and mercy. Let's pray. Father, some of us are in a deep season of sorrow. They read these words and they say, those words are the words that are in my own heart. I loathe my life. Why did you bring me out of the womb? Just tell me why. I thank you, Father, that you have given words that resound in our hearts to bring to you in prayer. And I pray, my prayer for my suffering brothers and sisters, my prayer for those who who may be suffering who may not even be Christians yet, I pray that they would discover the grace of prayer to pour out their complaints, even their bitter complaints to you. And I pray that as they seek you, you would fix the eyes of their hearts on the mediator, on Christ Jesus himself, the one who came and laid his hands on us both to bring us together forever. We praise you, Father, that that Jesus did not send himself, but the Father sent his son to die for our sins. And so may we trust you as the God who is good, as the God who is compassionate, as the God who is merciful, and as the God who is just. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.